But before we begin, get out a piece of paper and a pen because we're going to do a pop quiz on the genealogy of all the people we talked about last two weeks ago and the week before that. Right? Kim's got it. All right? No? No? All right. Who was... Who was the first wife of Henry VIII? Catherine of Aragon. The European major in the back cannot answer any questions this evening. <laughs> That's what she... Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't count when you're getting it from both sides. Right. Uh, what else? Let's see. Who was Mary Stewart? Say that again. Mary, Queen of Scots. How is she related to Elizabeth I? Begins with a C and rhymes with uzen. There you go. You're going to say that, right? Uh, who, who was Mary, Queen of Scots' son? James, number six. All right, of of. If she's Mary, Queen of Scots, then James VI, this king of Scots and Scotland, he becomes James the of England, this country right south of it. All right? Okay, good. We'll talk about James tonight a little bit. All right? Okay. Uh, how was Catherine of Aragon related to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain? No, not cousins. Yeah, Catherine was their daughter, right? Okay, so, and we all know Ferdinand and Isabella from 1492. Columbus sails the ocean blue. Very good. Okay, all right. Good. Any questions from, I know it's been two weeks. You've heard my voice enough this week, right? I don't know how you do this every week. I am mentally dead. So, right? But anything, any questions from two weeks ago or the week before that? Nothing? All righty. Just going to say, get more ready for some more genealogy because that's all we're doing tonight. That's family trees all over the place. Actually, we are not doing any more genealogies, I promise. All right? Just unless we're necessary, but we don't have any more of that today. All right, sir? Who's my favorite reformer and why? Well, it all depends on my mood. <laughs> if I really want to let you know what I think off the top of my head, it'd have to be Luther, right? He says some things that I'm not allowed to say up here. If I'm in a day where I'm like, I really wish I could carry a sword, John Knox. But that's just my Scottish in me, so, you know, I'd like to carry a sword that is just as tall as I am. That would be a lot of fun. I would die trying. <laughs> probably. Probably trying to swing at once. I would die trying. Uh, I don't know. Who's your favorite reformer? Zach. Zach, you want to get up and define fulcrum for everybody? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. 
just a lever doing work, right? It's the point of work on a lever. Who is your favorite? And then John Knox. I like the fact that John Knox and five other guys named John wrote the Scots Confession, 1560. Apparently, John and James are the only names they know up there. You know, so maybe William ever so often. Right? All right, let's get into this. Church, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Alrighty, let's begin. The 16th century witnesses a period of immense religious vitality that moved through Protestants and Catholics alike, rulers and theologians, those of high birth, those of low birth, and all engaged were convinced that they did so for religious reasons. What was at stake for Luther, for Charles V, for Leo X, for Calvin, for even Henry VIII was the very truth of God. And the often acrid words and even more violent actions that Christians levied against each other were due to the firmness of their convictions. All right, but as the sun begins to set on the 16th century, the enthusiasm and the conviction of those earlier generations begins to wane for those who, like Henry IV of France, out of, those, uh, out of political and personal considerations, begins a policy of limited religious freedom. Remember that Henry was involved in France's wars of religion, and he repeatedly changes his position for political gain, right? So it's either to save his life or to somehow change his political gain. So he went from Protestant to Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant no less than seven times. Right? And then when he was assassinated, it was thought because he was too Protestant. He was assassinated by a Catholic zealot. Right, the same can be said for the German princes during the Thirty Years' War. We'll get into the Thirty Years' War briefly. Right, but they used religion to further their own political gains, their own 
personal gains. So the religious zeal, the religious conviction of the 16th century during the time of the reformers drops dramatically. So then religion becomes nothing more than a, a tool to be used by those in power. Right? So they went from money and military might to money, military might, and religion. And it was always, well, I'm a Protestant or I'm a Catholic, and therefore we need to either battle each other or we need to create leagues or unions in order to stand up and fight either the Protestants or the Catholics or be prepared to either fight the Protestants or the Catholics. Right? So religion goes, Christianity, this is the closing end of Christendom, Christianity goes from something that is to be revered, Christ is to be honored and worshipped, Christianity goes to something little more than something to put on a political ballot. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? Yeah, well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We experience some of those same things in America today, right? And unfortunately, we're beginning to draw battle lines, us versus them. It's the same thing happened in the late 16th, early 17th centuries. It becomes us versus them. Right now we have yet to create leagues where we actually go to war with each other. Uh, I am sad to admit that that will probably happen one of these days again in the United States. But I'm not a prophet, and I hope it doesn't. So, but anyway, all right? So, when we look at this shift in religious conviction, all right, and because of the growing numbers of other things that are happening, Remember, this is the end of the 16th century. What else is happening in the 16th century? Right? Columbus has already sailed. Right? We know that. That's the end of the 15th century. But there's also a whole bunch of exploration going on in the New World. Right? There's also a whole bunch of exploration going on around the Cape of Good Hope, around Africa, up to Madagascar, and then to India, and then into what is now the Dutch East, Dutch East Indies, or was the Dutch East Indies, and then up to Japan. Right, so this is also the age of exploration. Right? You have men like John Cabot, uh, who was actually a Genoese, so he's from Italy, sailing under the English flag, who just basically discovers what is now Nova Scotia and northeast, northeastern United States. He's going after the codfish. Right? Because the codfish, which used to grow about as big as these tables, right, was a huge moneymaker. Right? You'd catch him. And then you'd fillet them on deck, and you would salt them and air dry them up on the, uh, on the, the mainsails, which are the big crossbars of a sailing vessel. And then they would get as hard as a plank of wood, and then you could take them back to the old country, and you could sell them, right, because they'd be preserved. Right? So John Cabot made millions, if not billions, in today's money for the English crown through the codfish. In so doing, he mapped what is now Nova Scotia and parts of Maine and down the coast of Massachusetts. Right. Okay. So there's a whole lot of things going on. Right. Galileo. Galileo's looking through his telescopes. He's looking at Jupiter. He's discovering the moons of Jupiter. He discovers the rings of Jupiter. Right. So there's scientific and astronomical and mathematical discoveries. So you have all these religious aspects, you have all these religious convictions going on, you have all these scientific uh, discoveries happening, and what that does is it leads to what we call 
rationalism. We'll get into rationalism here in a bit. All right? And be, so because of all this, the shift in religious convictions, the discoveries being made in the New World, the other scientific discoveries being made, there's now Europe is going to move from Christendom into rationalism and from rationalism straight into the Enlightenment, from the Enlightenment into an Industrial Revolution and so forth. So basically what we're talking about now, beginning in the 17th century with the death of Elizabeth I in 1603, what we're looking at is actually the building of modern society. What happens then has a direct effect on what is happening right now. And I mean right now, I mean right now, right now, as you sit in these seats. Right? You would not be here today in these seats were it not for all that's about to happen that we're going to look at. Right? And how the church, how that affects the church and how the church affects it. Okay? Any questions so far? Any comments? No? Okay. Let's go. There is the fact that zeal for true doctrine doesn't fade. That's good. So there's still some that hold on to orthodoxy. Okay? But the time for great theological discoveries doesn't exist anymore. That all happens in the 16th century. So what you're looking at now is more and more people are wanting to, uh, more theologians are wanting to argue the points that were made in the 16th century. Right? And so when you, read, when you read Calvin, when you read Luther, Zwingli, uh, even when you read Erasmus of Rotterdam, they seem to have a very whimsical, there's a closed fist and yet an open palm aspect of their theology. Well, now we're going to go closed fist and closed fists because the battle lines are being drawn between Protestants and Roman Catholics even more and even within Protestants and Protestants and those theological doctrines, you know, you're going to hold on to your champion's doctrines. Right? So it's now closed fist, closed fist. And what happens with that theological zeal is it goes from being, hey, I want you to know the word of God. I want you to, to understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to, all right, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to know the five points of Calvinism, right? Tulip, right? Other than that, that's all you need to know, right? So you go from a, a biblical theology to a very systematic theology where it seems like in sometimes the systematic theology is placed above scripture, which is kind of ironic because what's one of the big solas of the Reformation? It's sola scriptura. Well, in some ways, the theologians of the second and third generations begin to put systematic theology or tradition next to scripture. Right, so there has to be, there's going to be a reaction to that. Rationalism is one of those. The other one is spiritualism or the spiritualists. Right, there are still that are not satisfied with frigid scholarly orthodoxy. Some sought to place greater emphasis on the spiritual nature of the gospel, often at the expense of the physical nature of the gospel. Right? So you're wanting to be more spiritualizing it. We do it today. We spiritualize everything. Right? But in this case, you know, they're wanting to put spiritual aspects of the gospel above the actual physical nature of the fact that we are it's made in God's image, but we are still physical. There is a physicalness to us. Calvin and Luther would try to uh, include the fact that the physical aspect, the physical aspect of creation is good. Spiritualists try to begin to just focus mainly on the spirit. Right? That's, kind of, that's a dangerous, right? You're, 
you're, you're, you're bifurcating, if you will, the human person, right? Because your soul, your soul, spirit, and body, and if I take one and emphasize it over the other, I'm losing the aspect of the physical, right? So that you're, you're actually made to be physical and spiritual. Others in the spiritualists were not accepted in their own native lands, so then they moved to other lands, especially in England. They moved to Holland. They moved to Belgium. From there, they will then move to the New World. Others, not wanting to divorce themselves from the established churches, sought to cultivate a deeper personal faith and piety. We'll look at the pietists next week. When we talk about the pietists, we're talking like John and Charles Wesley. Okay. Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf as well. We'll get familiar with those names next week. But before we do that, we have to look at the 30 Years' War because it has a massive effect on what's going to happen throughout the rest of continental history. By continental, I mean European, continental European history. And then it kind of spills into England as well. The Thirty Years' War was from 1618 to 1648, but it was not, it doesn't just happen. Wars, just like everything else in history, wars just don't happen. This is not on your notes, okay? This is just kind of a filler in. Wars just don't happen out of the blue. The civil, I'll give you an example. The American Civil War was actually written into our Constitution. Right? It was one of those things that was just inevitably going to break, right? And four score and seven years later, sure enough, it does. Okay? The Thirty Years' War, like most wars, begins at the end of another conflict and with the signing of a peace treaty. In this case, the peace treaty is the Peace of Augsburg. Now, we've talked about Augsburg before. We've talked about the Augsburg Confession with Philip Melanchthon, who is the uh, Luther's mouthpiece, if you will. And we'll run into... Melanchthon next week as well. But the Peace of Augsburg is signed in 1555 between the Holy Roman Emperor and the German Protestant princes. Remember the Holy Roman Emperor, in this case it was Charles V, uh, Holy Roman Emperor uh, is Catholic. He's part of the Habsburg dynasty, comes right out of Spain. The Habsburgs at this point ruled, uh, I would say, 75% of Europe. Right? I mean, Spain what is now Austria, parts of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which is Austria, Romania, Hungary, Poland. They rule the lowlands, which are Belgium, uh, Holland, Flanders, the Flemish. Holland and Belgium don't really exist as countries yet at this point. But they, most of the landmass of Europe. Okay? So they, they're a very powerful family. So he signed between 1555, between Charles V and the German Protestant princes. Basically what it does is it ends the religious wars in Germany, right, in the 16th century. Basically it's, it's the same type of thing that happened when uh, Henry IV came to power in France. It ends the, the, uh, the French wars of religion. But the Peace of Augsburg is a massive failure. First... Religious freedom that it gave only adhered to those who 
upheld the Augsburg Confession. And it also only adhered to those who were royalty. So the commoners really had no religious freedom. Now, if a German prince was Protestant, most of the time his people went Protestant. There was also a clause within the Augsburg uh, peace tree that said, you know, if, you're, if you want to remain Catholic and your prince becomes Protestant, you can flee to another one, flee to another state, a Catholic state. So it wasn't truly religious freedom for the people. It was religious freedom for the princes. Now, that religious freedom for other princes to be Protestant was Luther. You had to be Lutheran. The Augsburg Confession is for the Lutherans. If you were Calvinist, if you were Zwinglian, if you were an Anabaptist of any type, you were still open to persecution. Right? So basically, your religious freedom was you had to be a prince and you had to be Lutheran. Other than that, well, you're all on your own. And there was still a lot of open persecution of Calvinists, Anabaptists, Zwinglians. If you were a Catholic person in a Protestant state, then you were also persecuted as well, and vice versa. Okay? The ecclesiastical territories, the, the, the areas owned by the church, the Catholic church, remained Catholic. Right, so they still had massive land tracts within Protestant, print, uh, Protestant states, Protestant kingdoms. But basically, all the Augsburg Peace Treaty proved itself to be was an armistice of 58 years. It's a lot like the Treaty of Paris that ended the First World War. It was basically an armistice for 20 years before Hitler invades Poland on the 1st of September of 1939. All it does is stop the fighting so that it can make horrible weapons, right? And then perfect tank warfare and blitzkrieg. That's all it does. The same thing with the Peace of Augsburg leading into the Thirty Years' War. But the prelude to war, it's actually kind of weird. It begins in 1606 in Donauwerth, which is an imperial city, next to Bavaria in southern Germany. Uh, basically, some riots happen within this Protest, uh, between the Protestant and Catholics. It's a, it's a Protestant uh, city. Um, they had one Catholic bastion in that city. It was a monastery. And the prince of the, or the, the, prince of the, s of the state, um, his name was Frederick something or other. It doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, he said, we'll allow this one monastery to exist. But monks, you cannot come outside. You cannot process through the city like they used to do, praying. Right? You had to stay within the monastery. Well, one day the, in 1606, the monks got a little brave. And they're like, oh, we'll go process around the middle of the city in the plaza. And uh, then we'll come back. Well, as they were processing through the city, people were stoning them. They were throwing rotten eggs at them. They were throwing the contents of chamber pots at them. They, were basically, they basically ran them from the plaza back into the monastery. And then they laid, laid siege to the monastery. And it wasn't until the prince came in and said, hey, you know, that's, uh, that's enough. Right? So these riots begin. Right? And we jump to 1608. And the Protestants formed the Evangelical Union. 
right? So the first EU in England or in Europe is not the European Union, it's the Evangelical Union. And basically all it is is a bunch of Protestant princes that come together and say, hey, if we're going to end up going to war, we need to have some sort of allies together to then be able to fight off the Catholics. Well, the Catholics, not to be outdone, in 1609 create the Catholic League, which is a very unique name, right? I'm sure they had to think long and hard on that one, just like the Evangelical Union, right? But they vastly outnumber the, the Union. But the actual start of the Thirty Years' War happens not in 1618, but in 1617 in Bohemia. Does anybody know where Bohemia is? Czechoslovakia, yep. Modern-day Czech Republic or Czechia or whatever they call it these days, right? It's just south of Bavaria. It's technically German lands because they're all ethnically German. It's this, the Sudetenland that Hitler takes over in 1938, uh, where Prime Minister Chamberlain comes back to England, waves the papers as we've made peace in our time, right? Turned out to be a lie, right? So, right, so you have all these ethnic Germans living in northwestern Czechoslovakia, or what is northwestern Czech Republic today. Right? The Protestants revolt against their king. His name is Ferdinand. He's the king of Bohemia. The kings of Bohemia were not linear. They were elected. So you were, you know, elected king. I don't know if you served until your death or there was a certain time that you're like, yeah, I'm done being king, but he was elected king of Bohemia. So anyway, the Protestants revolted against some of his religious policies. What those policies are, let's not get into it. But out of anger, some of the Protestants threw two of his advisors out of a two-story window. They call that episode, it's called the defenestration of of Prague, because it happens in Prague. Defenestration. Defenestrate is literally the word, it's the verb, that means to throw somebody or something out of a window. Right? So if I were to throw anybody out of that window, number one, that's good for me. Number two, I would defenestrate you through that window. Right? So that's called the defenestration of Prague. Uh, The two guys survived. Luckily, they landed in a manure heap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would rather smell like cow dung for a couple of days than be dead from being thrown out of a secondary window, right? But that actually marks the beginning of the Thirty Years' War because as soon as that news got out and everybody got their stuff all hot, in May of 1618, the actual fighting begins. The Catholic League invades Bohemia, dealing the Protestants a heavy blow in that city so that by 1626, which is eight years later, Right? As they're going through all these territories, one has to either convert to Catholicism or they have to leave. Right? So you have people dying, people immigrating, you have utter chaos for eight years. Go back a year, in 1625, England, the Netherlands, Denmark, they joined the Protestants in an attempt to thwart the power of the Habsburgs in Spain. So what happens now is what was a German fight all of a sudden becomes a European-wide conflict. And basically, 
what that also becomes is a family-wide conflict because, as we've already discovered, everybody's related to each other through intermarriage. Uh, it's basically a precursor to the First World War, and it's almost as bad. So 1625, England, the Netherlands, Denmark joined the Protestants in an attempt to thwart the Habsburg dynasty. Habsburgs are Catholic, and they rule most of Europe. Uh, France then joins the fight because it hates Spain and Germany at this time. So that's always fun. All right. Then in March of 1632, a whole 14 years into the conflict, so halfway into the 30 years war, Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden, decides to join the fight. Now, Sweden are now Lutheran countries. He is a Lutheran king. But basically, he joins the fight because Denmark joined the fight back in 1625. Denmark used to rule Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. It was the kingdom of Denmark. And there was a sub-king within Norway. There's a sub-king within Sweden. Denmark's power fades. Norway breaks off. Sweden takes the advantage. They break off. And they say, hey, if you're going to fight, we're going to fight. We may fight you in the process, Denmark, but in the meantime, our main goal is to kill Catholics. Okay? So Gustav Adolphus runs in, and he is an amazing general. He starts, uh, he became king at the age of 17, and he'd do nothing but warfare from that time on. He's 17, but by 1632, he's, uh, so he's about 33 now, so he's been king for a while. Okay. He invades Bavaria, and he crushes the Catholic League. I mean, this guy, if you were going to study military history, Adolphus is one guy to study because he was a great strategist, a great uh, tactician. He runs in and he just sweeping victory after sweeping victory until November of 1632. He's killed in the Battle of Lutzen in another smashing victory over the Catholics. But this time the king of Sweden dies. They ship his body home, right? Basically, warfare as an organized sport, if you will, warfare becomes nothing more than uh, guerrilla warfare style. There's a bunch of skirmishes, there's fighting, there's banditry, right? And so from 1632 until 1648, you just have a bunch of pockets of fighting, and it seems to be all the time, right? But it's got everybody involved. It's not just the Germans fighting the Germans. It's the Germans fighting the French, the Spanish, the English, the Dutch, the Danish, the Norwegians, the Swedes, Swedish, everybody. Everybody you can think of is fighting in Germany. But finally, in 1648, all sides are tired of bloodshed, and they sue each other for peace. They're like, we're done. Time to go home. We've had enough of this. And the opposing sides signed two peace treaties in the territory of Westphalia. Westphalia is, if here's the center of Germany, Westphalia is, of all things, to the west, right? Westphalia. Okay? Westphalia. They signed two peace treaties. France and Sweden come out on top of this. I don't know how that works. 
you're fighting in the midst of a German war that's actually started between Germans, and you're the one that gains all the land. So France gains what is, again, the Alsace-Lorraine region along the Rhine River. Sweden gains a whole bunch of territory. Right? They come out on top. They come out smelling like roses. The German princes and their subjects now have true religious freedom. Right? You can be a Catholic living in a Protestant state. You can be a uh, Protestant living in a Catholic state. You're not allowed to persecute anybody anymore. That also includes you could be a Calvinist, an Anabaptist, or a Zwinglian living in those same states. And also what the Peace of Westphalia does is it weakens the power of the Holy Roman Emperor. So that by 1648, you're basically Holy Roman Emperor in nothing more than title. So from the reign of Charlemagne, who was the first Holy Roman Emperor back in the 750s, until 1648, almost 900 years, the Holy Roman Emperor had a massive title to the lands of Central Europe. Now you're nothing more than Holy Roman Emperor in title, and that's it. You have no power behind your authority. Okay? That's massive. That is a massive thing, because that's 900, that's almost 1,000 years of history. Could you imagine that? Number one, could you imagine being the last Holy Roman Emperor who had all that power taken away from you? Right? You'd be like, well, that stinks. Well, I didn't get to enjoy any of this. All right? Okay? So the outcome of the war is this. The Thirty Years' War lasted 29 years, 11 months, 3 weeks, and 1 day. It went from May 23rd, 1618, to May, I think it's 11th, 1648. So literally almost 30 years. Now, the Hundred Years' War went 115 years. I don't know why they don't call it the 115-year war. They just call it the Hundred Years' War. But the Thirty Years' War, sure, I can round that up to 30 years. No big deal. Right? I've just got six more days to do so. Okay? It cost the lives of Eight million people. Now you're thinking, oh, Kyle, that's not too bad. Right? It's only eight million people over 30 years. Well, I did the math. That's 730.5 people per day for 30 years straight, not including leap years. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases, entire villages were wiped out. Villages of Protestants by Catholics. Villages of Catholics by Protestants. And it was the bloodiest conflict in European history until August the 25th, 1914, with the start of the Great War, which we call World War I, which cost the lives of almost 40 million people. Right? That's only in 250 years' time from where we're at. 270 years' time. That's crazy. Right? Eight million people in 30 years, right? the, most, or the bloodiest conflict in European history until the beginning of the First World War. The peace and the tolerance that ensued was not done out of Christian love, but rather out of political necessity and growing indifference to religious matters. So the peace of Westphalia, even though it's done by quote-unquote Christian nations and quote-unquote Christian armies, has no aspect of Christian love in it. There's no charity. There's no actual biblical desire for unity in that peace treaty. It's let's stop doing, let's stop fighting mainly because 
as a political entity, we are tired of fighting. Right? If it was done out of Christian love, it should have started, you know, before May, May 1618, right? What the Thirty Years' War proved was that it is impossible to settle religious arguments by a show of arms or a show of force. And in the end, nothing was really resolved. Instead, you see a change in philosophy for rulers beginning to emerge. The decision of rulers should not be guided by religious or confessional considerations from now on, but by self-interest or what is best for their subjects. And from this war, we see the rise of the development of the modern secular state. And you begin to see a move away from the understanding of a true church and state union that people like Luther and Calvin truly understood. And so the Thirty Years' War raises more questions than it actually answers. Questions like, how true is a doctrine that leads to such atrocities? How can one serve God without the dictates of a strict orthodoxy? And what role, if any, does religion have in national affairs? When somebody answers those questions, right, we can shut down as a nation, I guess. Because those are the same questions that we ask today. You know, what does your private religion have to do with the public show? You know, keep your religion out of politics. Right? Those, those, answer, those questions seem familiar? Am I the only one? No? This is an election year, people. Let's pay attention to what's going on, right? Okay? Right? Okay. That's, that's the 30 years war. Any, uh, first of all, any questions? Any comments? What's your reaction? Nobody has a reaction to 30 years war. Eight million people died in 30 years, folks. It changes the face of European politics forever. It changes the way that people understand the con connection between church and state forever. It changes the way that it changes the effects of the way people think philosophically and how nations should actually be ruled. Right? Without the Thirty Years' War, America as a country would not exist philosophically. And I can draw that line by saying this. Right? The Thirty Years' War, in the philosophical discussions that happen afterwards, and we'll look at some of that in the rationalists, right? what you see is a beginning to say, I don't know if I can truly trust an ecclesiastical order that says you have to adhere to these strict guidelines, and then a hierarchical monarchy, an absolute monarchy in some ways, that says you have to fight for king and country, oh, let's throw God in there just in case. Right? So in the philosophical understanding of this country, the philosophical background, which we'll see in John Locke and others, is that you see this, who, who is this God to dictate how a country is ruled? Is there a way that we can keep God out of this, these politics? You can, you can have him privately, but is there a way to keep him out of here? Here's what, ha you know, how, how, do we, how do we keep a country from saying this is 
our church and we will have a church of England or we will have a church of Scotland or we will have a church of Germany. Germany as a country doesn't really exist at this point. Church of France, church of Spain. How can we do that and hold on to these Republican little r ideals? Right? Those are the questions that are raised by the 30 years war. Those are the questions, those questions are attempted to be asked or answered, excuse me, in the American Revolution and then even worse in the French Revolution. Okay? Does that make sense? I did, This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the modern secular age. This is the beginning of the modern secular nation. Because up to that time, whether you're a pagan society, say you're Rome, Rome's, Rome's religion and Rome's politics are so intertwined that Augustus becomes synonymous with the sun god. Right? So then... The Caesar is deified. Right? Fall of the Roman Empire, who steps up? Well, the political aspect's gone. Who has to stand up? It's the church. And so you see bishops running out to, to literally tell the barbarians at the gates, whoa, if you're going to plunder, that's great, but don't kill anybody. Or I'm not going to allow you to come into my city at all. Right? So... This is literally a paradigm shift in the thinking of how government works and how religion is to fit within a greater society. You're beginning to see the split of that. And what's funny is Europe never has really split from that because you still have the Queen of England is the defender of the faiths now, as they say. Her title's not defender of the faith. It's a pluralistic society, so she has to defend all faiths in Great Britain. Uh, France, after the French Revolution, the French, at best, are an agnostic country. And they have been for 220, 240 years. 230 years. Uh, United States, we say we're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles. I'm going to call baloney on that one. We are founded on moral philosophy, which has its beginnings in Christianity. But when I say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and then are endowed by their creator with a capital C, Thomas Jefferson did not bow his knee to Christ Jesus. He did not want to because he had no inkling of wanting to hold on to any type of miraculous birth life or death of anybody. And if you read the Jefferson Bible, he goes through all the pages of the gospel, actually the entire Bible, but especially in the gospel, and he cuts out everything that has to do with a miracle because of his enlightened brain. Thomas Jefferson was a very smart man, smarter than all of us combined in this room, I'm pretty sure. Right? But one thing he was not, as a founding father, was a Christian at best. He was a deist at best. If that bursts your bubble today, 
I'd rather do it now than later. All right, this is an election year and we need to know what actually happens in this country historically. All righty, okay. Does that answer your question, Jamie? To be honest, I would have voted for Thomas Jefferson. He, had a, he was a great president. He really, truly was. Right? He was, he was smart. Right? He understood the policies that needed to be dealt with. He knew how to, he knew how to manipulate politics. He was a good politician. Uh, I just would not have held him as my spiritual leader of the country because he was not one. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Yeah? Go for it. The main driving philosophy is they didn't purposely go in to say, hey, we're going to make this split and make it permanent. The main driving philosophy was, hey, I'm a human and I have a certain amount of reason. I can therefore use my power of reason to deductively think through the issues, whether I end up going down a slippery slope is another question. But I have this power of deductive reasoning that allows me to sit there and say, okay, I can look at the world and I can look at it naturally and I can see that in Newton, an apple falls and it falls towards the ground, which has to be a center of a sphere. Right? Therefore, I can say there's, there's, this natural, there's this natural cause. Therefore, there has to be a natural philosophy underlining that cause. Right? And I can, I can say that that natural cause is, is sacred or I can just say it's random chance. Uh, so it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's the product of what we're about to get into, the rationalists, as we look at people like Locke and then uh, uh, David Hume, Voltaire, men like that. Is that, that kind of? Yeah, it's not, you never, you never get one thing. It doesn't, there's not like one bam, right? You have to go back and look. Look at all this. So rationalism doesn't begin now or in 1648. Rationalism begins with Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Right? The scholastics are the precursor to the rationalists. The rationalists are the precursor because they move directly right into the Enlightenment, right? beginning about the 1720s. Okay? The, the rationalism and, and the Enlightenment kind of mix together, and they're almost one and the same after but rationalism was the movement characterized by interest in the natural world and confidence in the power of human reasoning leading to the Enlightenment. It's an outgrowth of the scholastics of the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, those men. And it's also an outgrowth of the Renaissance of the 14th and the 15th centuries and the 16th centuries. Its philosophy is focused uh, from a turn from theology to a turn to human reason. So we're going from the divine to the human. 
My philosophy is no longer grounded in scripture. It's grounded in what can I as a human think through. Okay? God has given humans an amazing ability for deductive reasoning. That's part of being made in the image of God. It's an amazing thing. Right? But because of the fall, it leads to some really dangerous and stupid endings. Right? So the telos of human reasoning, unless it's shaped by the blood of Christ, is actually dangerous. Don't believe me? Let's look back at the 30 years' war. Right? Eight million people in 30 years. But what's interesting is that some of, the, some of these rationalists are actually devout believers. Okay? When we look at, uh, next week when we look at Catholic orthodoxy, there are devout Catholics who are rationalists. Blaise Pascal, he's a mathematician, devout man. Pascal, who actually a lot of his mathematics is used in computer programming even today, right? would always, he, on the inside of his coat, he had his, uh, what we call his, our testimony, he had his testimony sewed into the inside jacket of his coat because he would go around and tell people about Jesus. But he was a rationalist. Right? The first one that we're going to look at is Rene Descartes. He too was a devout Catholic. Very much so. Right? Rene Descartes, French, if I was going to add one more man to my list of five, I'd put six number here as Rene Descartes. Right? We had Napoleon, Monet, Renoir, somebody else, Louis, the chef off of The Little Mermaid, and now Rene Descartes. Right? Okay. Right. He lived from 1596 to 1650. He was a, a polymath of anything. A polymuth is somebody who's really good at everything. Right? Poly, P-O-L-Y, M-O-U-T-H, M-O-U-T-H, excuse, excuse me, M-O-T-H, polymuth. Polymuth, many, muth, I have no clue what muth means, just means they're good at a lot of stuff. Okay? Right? Uh, but he's really known for mathematics. How many in here have studied algebra? Everybody should raise their hand. Right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to use it. All right, how many in here have found X today? Who in here is an engineer? Okay, all right, fine. All right. That's what you do every day, though, right? Yeah, right? Descartes is known for Cartesian geometry and Cartesian algebra. Cartesian just means, that's the Latin name of his last, Latin form of his last name, Cartesis, Descartes. Cartesian algebra, right? But he uses, in his philosophy, is based off his mathematical reasoning, and a lot of philosophers are, mathematic, are mathematicians. Uh, I don't know what it is about mathematics and philosophy, but it just requires thinking way outside the box in totally different ways, and uh, it usually makes the rest of us really sick to our stomachs, right? You have to be a special breed to be a mathematician. But it's based on mathematical reasoning. It's also based on a profound distrust, distrust of all things that are not absolutely certain. So you have mathematics and extreme distrust for all things not mathematically certain. 
And it begins with universal doubt. And his brand of philosophy is called Cartesian rationalism. Cartesian is C-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N. So take the D-E off of, or uh, yeah, the D-E-S off, and add an I-A-N at the end. Cartesian rationalism. His first undeniable truth was that he existed. Rene Descartes is famous for saying, I think, therefore, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. His second undeniable truth was that God existed. And you're like, why on earth is that his second undeniable truth? Well, you're about to find out. Descartes says that in his mind, he finds the idea of a more perfect being. So he finds in his mind. It's like he's looking around there one day and goes, oh, hey, there's this little treasure chest right here. I've never experienced that before. Right? So he opens it up. And on the inside of it is this idea of a more perfect being. Right? He says there that the mind cannot create or it cannot produce this idea. That idea had to have been in, uh, an inherently planted within the mind from the very beginning. It is up to the mind to find that idea. Right? So the, the idea is already in your brain, somewhere locked deep down inside. You have to think through it. That's the rational aspect of it. You have to think through it, and you have to discover it. Right? Because the mind itself cannot produce it. This is an idea, a more perfect being is an idea above the brain, above the human mind. It is above itself. And that idea must have been placed there by no one but God. Therefore, God exists. Now, raise your hand if that makes all the sense in the world to you. It does. It really does. Right? So, I know that I exist because who else is standing up here jabbering his jaws at 7.30 in the evening on Descartes? It's me. Right? I know that I exist because right now my mind is thinking through all of this stuff. But if I sit down long enough and I think through, well, who am I? What am I doing here? You know, the who, what's, why's, where's, when's, and how's. Those five questions. How, why am I here? Where did I come from? How did I get to this place? Descartes would say those questions inevitably lead you to that treasure box. Right? So you find it. And inside of that treasure box is that idea that there is a being supremely, perfectly more glorious than yourself. In a way, it's a little platonic. It almost mirrors the cave in some ways. But I know that this idea is not something that I just out of the blue thought up of one day, but that my heart and my mind go searching for it. Right? And when I come to the conclusion, when I come to a conclusion, that only conclusion is that God himself had to put that there. Now that's 
Descartes' Catholic upbringing and his mathematical philosophy merging. And Descartes would say God is more glorified in that aspect because now I have used the reasons that he has given me, the reason that he has given me to find him. What's one thing wrong with that conclusion? What are you not using to find God? Faith. What else has God given us? The Holy Spirit. Has he written us, has he written us any letters? Has God, through the Holy Spirit, written us any letters? Yeah, it's his word. Right? I'm not using the revelation that God has given me through his word to come to any of this conclusion. I'm using my own reason. Now, the theologians that first came against Descartes realized that, uh, that this is little, little more than doubt expressed in the philosophical mode of skepticism. Because I can also take that same line of thinking about where am I going with this treasure box and just saying, oh, that's all in me. I am the one that's, you know, this treasure box is innate in every human person. Therefore, I don't really need God. I don't have to believe in God. I just have to contemplate my belly button long enough to end up finding that little treasure box. Okay? That's not the way Descartes meant it. But that's the way it has come across. All right? Any questions so far on Descartes? No? Okay. What? However, his developments on the question between spirit and matter, because then he goes on more to discuss spirit, the physical and the spiritual realm, all right, are what really garner theological attention. Right? He asks some uh, he says some really crazy things, and nobody has ever really came up with a great understanding of what I'm about to say. So I'm just going to throw out these facts to you, and if you ever want to do the philosophical work for it, by all means, you are more than welcome to. Right? Okay? According to Descartes, humans consist of two parts. The res cogitans, which is the one one thinks, and the res extensia, that means occupy space. So basically he's saying... Humans consist of two things, spirit and matter, right? Anybody going to disagree with that? You really shouldn't. Okay. Just double checking. Okay. But he's never fully able to expound uh, what he's meaning by these two things, and so later on there are three attempts to try to understand it, right? Don't write any of this down because this will blow your mind, right? Just listen because I'm just going to read through it real quick. The first one is called occasionalism. It's two parts, basically the two parts, the soul and the spirit, the spirit and the body, they communicate between each other on occasion whenever God wants them to. That was made by some Belgian dude named Arnold Gelionex, a good old Gaelic name, or Gallic name, excuse me, and then a French guy named Nicholas Malabranche. But occasionalism is basically do two parts communicate through divine intervention. That's all the mystery. 
The second one, some of you may be more familiar with this one, is called monism. M-O-N-I-S-M. Monism is thought and physical are not two, but are attributes of the same substance. Monism means one. So they're not two separate ideas. They're actually the two different sides of the exact same coin. Okay? That's monism. And that's basically provided by Baruch de Spinoza or Bartholomew de Spinoza, depending on if you want to use his Jewish name. And then lastly, and this is the one that's totally out there, it's the pre-established harmony. All right? You ready for this one? Buckle up, because this is fun. All right? I think they were on something when they were looking at this. All right? It says, God makes lots of little substances called monads. They do not communicate with each other at all. And German Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz is the guy that came up with this idea. Monads seem to act independ- or seem to act interdependently, meaning on dependence of each other. But in actuality, they do not. Right? Don't ask me where he's coming up with this. Right? So the soul and the body communicate like various clocks in a shop, in a clock shop. Now, clocks in a clock shop don't act together as one. It all depends on the timing of how the clockmaker winds them up. Right? So you walk into a clock shop and you hear the clocks go tick, 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 tick. But what you're actually hearing is in stereo surround sound, all the clocks going at different times within millimeter or milliseconds apart from each other. Right? And then depending on how the alarms are set, you get one set goes off at two, one at three, one at two fifteen, whatever. Right? So we walk in a clock shop that incessant background clicking, right, are not all the clocks going off at once or together, they are independently, right, but to your senses, it sounds like they all go off at the same time. Does that make sense? Good, I'm glad it does to somebody. So there is a, the pre-established order is set by the clockmaker, and if that clockmaker is a good one, the clocks seem to be communicating with each other. Okay? Questions? No? Good. Please don't ask me to understand that. I have tried for at least 10 years to try to. Right? But that's called pre-established harmony. Meaning that God creates this pre-established harmony so that it seems like things interact with each other, but they actually don't. I don't know. Okay? Meanwhile, all that's going on in France and the continent, things are looking totally different in the British Isles. Let's look at John Locke. There he is, looking sickly and deathly like he always did. John Locke lived from 1632 to 1704. And unlike Descartes' belief that one could discover by looking into the self, Locke held that the idea of knowledge was experiential. So knowledge is experiential. We call that empiricism. Not because of empire, but because of experiment. Empiricism with an E. So there are three ways that you can know people. There's an outer experience that's the sensual, meaning of the senses. And there's an inner experience, the mental, which is knowing ourselves and the functioning of our mind. 
Therefore, we have three levels of experience. Own self, outer self, and God. God whose existence is proven at each moment by the existence of the self and its experiences. Therefore, God is known only through reason. So you can think yourself into oblivion. You can experience yourself into oblivion. And you can sit and think about God through your reason until you've thought God out of oblivion or into oblivion himself. And then, just to confuse you even more, Locke goes, oh, hey, wait, there's one more way. I told you there were three. I lied. There are four. That fourth level of experience is called probability. Probability, you don't apply any proofs of reason, but it's judgment. It's actually on the level of judgment where we spend most of our lives. We go like, oh, do I want, uh, I like this one, I like that one, this one probably more hefty, this one, you know, this feels, that's judgment. It's making these little decisions day in and day out about how your life experiences. Or, I really want to be friends with this person, but, you know, their character is baloney or they smell like rotten cheese, you know, because it's the 17th century, early 18th century, you know, uh, that kind of judgment. And faith, any type of faith, according to Locke, is knowledge derived from revelation and not reason, right? Locke doesn't even believe in faith. Locke says that faith has to be come from outside of your level of experience. Faith is beyond you. Therefore, he has a hard time understanding and accepting faith because it's not something that I can think through up here. It's something I have to experience from outside of me. Okay? And because it is revealed from the outside, faith is always, according to Locke, never certain. Because how do I know that your faith is the true faith when I think that my faith is the true faith? This is the man who, along with Rousseau, was the philosophical grandfathers of our independence and our constitution. Reason and judgment are used to measure probability of what we are asked to believe by faith. Therefore, faith, according to Locke, is a lower reason. Reason, faith, uh, reason comes by knowledge of experience, and because it's my reason, it has a higher regard than faith. So with Locke, reason is the answer. Faith, hey, that's great if you have it, but uh, don't count on it. Okay? That's Locke. But he also says this. When it comes to Christianity and the existence of God and faith in Christ, Locke did say that the core understandings of Christianity are faith in God, God exists, and Christ is the Messiah. If you believe in Christianity. Remember, because... How, if my faith is, says this and your faith says this, how am I to know that your faith is greater than my faith? My reason says otherwise. But he does not believe that Christianity adds anything of importance to experience. Remember, experience is the number one thing. Experience dictates my reason in Locke. So we could find the truths of Christianity by the use of reason and judgment. And in his final analysis of Christianity, Locke was very clear 
that the expression of truth and moral laws that other, uh, that Christianity has a very clear expression of truth and moral law. However, those truths and moral laws could have been known by, national re by natural reasoning. So I could have come to the exact same conclusion of Christianity if I just sat there and reasoned myself through it. This is called moral philosophy. Okay? Any questions? Yes, sir? When it comes to an infant, they understand that, you know, you develop an intellect as you grow. Right? Part of that is potential, exactly. Uh, you have the potential for intellect. You know, I could hit my head on the way home and be dumb as a box of rocks. Most of you think that anyway, but that's all right. I, I know you do, so it's all right, right. So, right, as long as you have the potential for reasoning, the potential for intellect, you know, there is potential for that. Uh, you know, they had uh, people with cognitive disabilities back then as well. Uh, I'm not sure what they would think because they don't write on people like that. They, they never do. They just focus on their, on their philosophy. Uh, that would have to be more almost along the lines of where do they, what do they think of life itself? And I think, I think Descartes would definitely say, you know, life, all are made in God's image. So there's a, a speciality, there's a preciousness to those with a lower cognitive understanding. Uh, I'm not sure what Locke would say. Moral philosophy doesn't really deal with it, right? And we don't really, I mean, to be honest, I've only read two treatises by Locke, and I got bored halfway through them, right? So it's easy to do, okay? Those are good questions, though. Locke has a profound effect on what we call the deistic movement, or deism. Right? That was the furnace or the air conditioner giving me their understanding of what they thought of Locke. Right? <clears throat> but Locke has a profound effect on deism, uh, or called the free thinkers movement. Deism, deos, it just means God. Okay? Uh, they, are, uh, they don't accept atheism, but at the same time they don't accept strict orthodoxy. So, like, they're not Calvinists or Lutherans or, or strict Roman Catholics, right? They're like, we believe God exists, and that's it. They hold that true, true religion must be universal. They're not universalists as we think of. Right? That's not universalism. But what they say is that in order for it to be true religion... It must be natural to all mankind. So we all have to come to the same conclusions eventually. Okay? Which is different than capital U universalism. Okay? So it's not based on particular revelations or historical events, but on natural instincts of humans. So deists discount the significance of historical people like Jesus. They ignore his historical significance. They discount special revelation. So they discount the Old Testament and the New Testament. They discount scripture. 
Anything that seems miraculous is disregarded as mythology. Thomas Jefferson. God is not personal. In deism is where we get the analogy of the blind watchmaker. God sets up the universe, winds it up, lets it go, and lets it go through its revolutions. One of these days, this universe might just exist into nothing. God may, God may not create another one. Wind it up, set it on the shelf, let it go. But you're not going to be around, so who cares? That's deism. T.J. was a famous one. So was Benjamin Franklin. John Locke is considered a deist. Okay. Questions on Locke? Sir? Uh, I would I would actually say it, it comes from Kant. Kant is a, and we'll get into Immanuel Kant here in a bit, in a second. Uh, Kant is actually responding to Locke, who he's and then he's responding to David Hume, because it goes Locke, David Hume, Kant, and Kant takes the reasoning of Locke with this ability to reason yourself into oblivion and exist or existence, and Kant says, I can't, I can't do any of that. And then it's from Kant, even today, when we look at apologetics, modern apologetics is still a response to Kant, because everything after Kant, they all, they all react to Kant. So, yeah. But if you read Kant, he's responding to Locke. Good question. Let's look at David Hume real quick. Here he is, boom, in all of his Scottish glory, 1711 to 1776. All right, he is Locke and deism's greatest critic. It's not Kant, it's Hume. Knowledge, according to Hume, was not as experiential as Locke concluded. And according to Hume, we cannot see or experience cause and effect. Right, here's an example, a billiard ball. I have a billiard ball on one end of the table, I hit that billiard ball, I know it's going to hit the other billiard ball at the end and will eventually replace it in time and space, and that other billiard ball is going to go clicking off this way, but I can't ever actually see on a microscopic level or a philosophical microscopic level how that takes place. I just know it does because I, I see it, but I don't know the exact cause and effect. If I were Newton, I'd be like, well, you dummy. It's simple kinetic energy. Right? It's not an elastic collision, or else they would both mold together and move on. It's an inelastic collision, where one would hit, and then the other one would go off. Right? But Newton was about 150 years beforehand, and so they never met. Right? So what we're seeing, according to Hume, is nothing more than a series of phenomena. So what we see are just the actions. We don't see the cause and effect. And you're thinking, the cause and effect is that I hit the billiard ball, and the effect is it hit the other billiard ball and went off this way. Right? That's what I thought the first time I read David Hume. Right? If you ever read David Hume, don't. Okay? 
Basically, what he's saying this. What he's saying is, you're, you look at this phenomena and not the substance of the phenomena. That makes no sense to me. I'm not a philosopher, so we're going to keep moving. Right. So things like the human soul or God mean little if we speak of nothing but their attributes. God is love. What the heck is love? Well, it means God loves us. Don't define the word love with the word love, is what Hume would say. Right? How do I know what these attributes are? How do I know what they're saying? Right? And that's, that's Hume. He's Scottish. He's incredibly pretentious. Just look at that picture. Right? It's pretentious. Right? I don't think he carried his claymore, though that'd make it even more awesome, but he didn't. Right? But he's saying to, he's saying to, to Locke, don't rely on your experiences. Because experiences, we all see experiences from a different angle. Therefore, what you see and what I see depend on the angle that we view that experience from. So we're looking more for the phenomena of the experience and, more, and less than the, the uh, substance of the experience. Right? Hume makes sense. If you shake your head yes, you need to come stand up here and teach. Okay? Now let's look at Kant. Immanuel Kant, here he is in all of his Prussian glory, right? looking very German. Right? Lived from 1724 to 1804. In his critique of pure reason, Kant pushes the idea that innate ideas cannot exist. Innate is anything that we already know. It's already built within us. Kant says, nope, innate ideas do not work. So he's... He's looking at Locke, and then he's also looking at Descartes. Because remember, Descartes said, oh, I found this treasure box within my mind. It was already put there. It's innate within me. Kant goes, uh, nope. We don't have innate ideas. We don't have these innate understandings. Instead, through our senses and the structures of the mind, time, space, and these 12 categories that he comes up with, right? We organize what we see and what we understand so that it makes sense to us. It's almost like reading uh, psychology in some ways. We, ex we, we take in all the information and our brain processes it and we automatically put it into categories. You know, that's a heavy ball, it's black, shiny. Right, so ball, black, shiny, heavy, those are four categories. That's how I know that this ball is in existence. That's how I know that it is real. Okay? And then our minds make these organizations and those sensations to make them intelligent or intelligible experiences. I, therefore, I know I'm holding a black, heavy, shiny ball. Right? It becomes tangible to me. Right? I've looked at it, my mind has processed it, and I've categorized that object that is in my hand. That's what Kant's saying. It's not somewhere. I don't automatically know it's a sphere or a ball. I don't know it's automatically black. These are categories that I've had to learn outside of myself because none of this is innate to me. 
None of those categories are innate. I have to put them into those categories. So what Kant does is he takes these rationalist ideas and he blows them out of the water. He says knowledge are things that our mind is able to grasp. And the first time I read that, I thought, no joke. Maybe it's because I am a child of the post-enlightened era, and so all of that is already innately taught within us. You know, you, you study, you know, you just, you know, what's an idea? Well, it's knowledge that you know. It's knowledge that I know. Okay. All right. But Kant says, I'm not going to take, in, there's nothing innate within me except nothing. And so I have to start with these clean slates. And I organize them all into these things. And I say, I know it's a book because it's bound. It uh, has the shape of a book. I can open it up and there are letters on a page. It's a book. Boom, that's my categories. Same thing with the, the hard, black, shiny ball. All right? But what he does when it comes to religion is he says, I can take something, I can take what I, what I have come to know, and I can think of it in the highest regard possible, and through good reasoning, I can come up with good morals. Wow. Right. So for God to exist and there's no way to prove that he exists based purely on experiential data. I can't go out and do an experiment to prove that God exists. Right? I have to base him off of the categories that I've put in my mind. That's how I know that God exists. Modern science is based off of a lot of this philosophy. Okay? I'm going to say human secularism is based off on a lot of this philosophy. And so what we call this, if God exists, reason then cannot know him. Reason alone cannot know him. I have to sit there and I have to think through it first. If reason cannot know him, it's because reason cannot know him, just like the, as in Kant says, the eye cannot hear, nor the hear, or nor can the ear see. Meaning this, I just don't have the faculty the senses, the experience, the experiential data to actually prove to you that he exists. Kant denies any type of supernatural revelation. He denies anything being outside of you. And what we call this is the Kantian turn to the subject. God is the object of worship. We all agree with that? You are the subjects of that worship. You worship God. God is not the subject. He is the object of your worship. Worship comes down and changes you as a person. Right? What Kant does through reason and his understanding of who God is, is he says, no, you are the one who categorizes God, not the other way around. Therefore, if I am to say that God exists, it is a God that I have made up in my own reason. I create God out of who I think God is or who I think moral or what, who I, what I think moral reasoning and moral 
understanding should be. And it is Kant's ideas that we still battle in Christianity today. It's, it's those ideas of, I will make up who I want. Anybody, anybody heard, heard that before? Yeah, it's called Genesis chapter 3. You make up who you want God to be. God didn't really say this, did he? It's the, same, it's the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just Kant said it way better than a serpent. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> he said it more bombastically and verbosely. Right? It's the same. It's the exact same pride that's in, that's in Genesis 3. Okay? So in Kant's philosophy, humans are the ultimate authority and our worship dictates the existence of God. We dictate who God is. We, the subject, determine the categories of our minds for the object. I was going to get to the Puritans today, but I don't want to. We're going to look at Voltaire and call it good. Okay? Voltaire, 1694 to 1778. His real name is Francois-Marie Aru. If you want me to spell that for you later, just make up something in French and you'll be all right. Francois-Marie is hyphenated. Marie was his mother's name, and that's how French people used to do their names. He's a satirist, and he heavily wrote against fanaticism, both religious and political. Anybody in here read Candide? Anybody in here should read Candide? His biggest target was the Roman Catholic Church in France because he was not a fan of their extravagance. Right? The, next to the crown of France, the Roman Catholic Church owned more land than all of the poor people put together in France. And they were bazillionaires. Right? So you can understand why Voltaire was a little miffed at him and why he made fun of him. You say that God exists and that God loves the poor, and you're sitting in your multi-bazillion dollar house on 87,000 acres of prime real estate. What are you doing to help the poor? Nothing. And he talks about that in Candide all day long. Okay? He turns his attention to the religiously orthodox and their unreasonableness. Basically, he says, if you're a religious fanatic, you're unreasonable. You're an idiot. Voltaire doesn't mix words. I would have read parts of Candide for you tonight, but you would have run me off the stage on a rail. It is filthy for 18th century language. Right? I mean, it is bad. He is not one to mince words, and as a satirist, he could do that. And so for, for Voltaire, reason could not be found in optimistic rationalism but in the history of the progression of ourselves and our human institutions. So you want to find something great? Just look how we progress as a human species. Reason was progression of ideas for Voltaire. And with those progression of the reason of ideas, they took Voltaire's ideas and they ran them to their ultimate conclusion, which was the French Revolution in all of its bloody, horrible, wonderful glory. 
And that's Voltaire. Voltaire, the French, there's also, uh, uh, lastly, there was uh, Montesquieu, uh, Baron de Montesquieu, who uh, has a lot to do with politics. Basically, Montesquieu was the one that said, if you want a good government, a good government should have three branches. And those three branches are That sound familiar? Ronnie? Okay. He didn't tell you whether or not the legislative was unicameral or bicameral. He didn't care. He just said executive, legislative, and judicial. Huh. I'm going to let you sit on that. All right. Yesterday was election day. All right. But that's all of these men is where your political philosophies of the United States are born. Not one of them willingly bow, except for Descartes, not one of them willingly bowed the knee to the king of kings. So when you argue politics, please remember that. Okay? That doesn't mean it's not worth arguing. It just means please know where the, where the history of those ideas come from. It's important to know. Because the history of those ideas should be shaped by the Alvatis of should be shaped by your biblical understanding. Alrighty? Question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Remember these these men are trying to understand all of that based purely on reason and not special revelation. So you have to look at special revelation in a totally different light. So if I can, if I can think my way through it and come to the same conclusions, then there's nothing really special about this special revelation. Therefore, it's easy to then push it aside. Postmodernism is a deconstruction of modernism, which is a de- which is a direct outlining of rational and intellectualism and the Enlightenment. They would look a rationalist would look at postmodernism and say, "Where is your foundation? You have no basis except for existentialism. Your feelings do not matter. Therefore, you're irrational. And your entire society, based off of this irrationalism, is irrational." Well, is irrational and will fail. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what I think. That's just the logical thinking of a rationalist. Because you haven't thought through the process, they would say to a postmodernist. Therefore, you know, you're built on sand. Is what they would think. Yeah. 
Oh, I agree. And that's, that's an, as a result of Kant and our reaction to Kant in the 19th century with the idea of prod, uh, Protestant scholasticism. Yeah. There's Otto. It points to Kant. He is the fulcrum of, of philosophical history. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. I, Descartes was. Uh, I don't. I don't know if if Locke. I don't know. Could you? I have a really dry sense of humor. I know you all are surprised by that, right? But these guys make me look like a comedian. You read their stuff, and you're like, you know, you're like, Voltaire's hilarious. He's also French, right? But we only know I only like six French people, right? So, uh, but at the same time, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Voltaire was. Uh, I, I don't know if he was. So, yeah, so, yeah, 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 who else had a question, you had a question, didn't you? yeah, I would say, Now you're talking secular humanism, correct? And not the rap, the understanding of humanism from the 15th century. Okay, secular humanism, uh, the idea that the human mind is the most powerful thing, and that it's the end all of end alls is in the human mind. Uh, well, I think Kant would probably say something like, "I really don't know." I don't think he would accept secular humanism because he does go on to say that God is a great idea. He doesn't go as far as Marx and say religion is the opiate of the masses, but he would say that you know, Kant doesn't really have anything against God. He would just say that the idea of God originates within the human mind. Secular humanism would then come along and say that the most powerful thing in the universe is the human mind, and the end-all of end-alls is the human mind. Kant would be okay to say that if your reason, even though it can't be found reasonably, it is okay to have God as the end-all. So, does that make sense? Okay, good. Good. Anything else? I like it when you guys ask questions like this. Makes me think. Makes me have to think through it. Renaissance humanism, as opposed to secular humanism, just means that you study the humanities, right? So your, your study of the arts, literature, history, uh, languages, 
right? So that's a true humanist. I am a humanist. I have a deg three degrees in history and ethics. Right? Those are humanistic or the humanities, right? So I'm a humanist. I should wear my little humanist hat, but no, right? So grow up my beard like Calvin did, right? So, so there's a difference between secular humanism where humans are the apex and then humanism where you're studying history and philosophy and theology and literature and stuff like that. So. What else? Okay, you can ask afterwards. We gotta pray. <laughs>